Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we have journalist and author of the book, We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood, Danny McLean. Today, we talk with Danny about her amazing book, Social Justice and Raising Children, Reproductive Rights, The Maternal Mortality Crisis, and a whole lot more. Then we move from Danny's writing to her reading and discuss the book she loves, the authors she admires, and the things she would assign if she were a school teacher. You can connect with Danny and the stacks in the show notes, and you can find details to everything we discussed on today's episode right there as well. Make sure you link up with the stacks on social media to never miss out on announcements, events, giveaways, and more. If you love the stacks and want to support the work we're doing on the show, join the stacks pack over on Patreon. That's a place where you can contribute to the work we're doing and get perks for yourself, like inside access to the show, including our virtual book club. To join the stacks pack, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. I also want to give a shout out to Holly Noble, one of our newest members of the stacks pack. Thank you so much, Holly. Remember, if you're looking for a book recommendation from the Stacks, email us at askingthestacks at gmail.com. We'll give you a personalized on-air suggestion based on your reading tastes. Just send us your name, what you're looking for in a book, and be sure to include a few books you've liked and maybe some that just weren't for you. And we'll come up with the perfect book. Email us at askingthestacks at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please, 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 please leave us a rating and a review. All right, let's dive into our conversation with author and journalist Danny McLean. All right, y'all, we're here today with author and journalist Danny McLean. Danny's book is called We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. Danny is also a contributing writer with The Nation and a fellow with Type Media Center. Her work focuses on race, reproductive health, and activism. Danny, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited you're here. Before we dive into your work, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, let's see. I've been covering reproductive health um, and organizing and activism for the past, I'd say seven years. I got a fellowship through the the Nation Institute, which is now Type Media Center about seven years ago. And, um, that has allowed me to carve out this beat. Um, you know, initially the, the fellowship was for reproductive rights coverage, but as I started digging in and kind of looking at how other people covered reproductive rights, I realized that what really called to me was the reproductive justice framework, which, um, I was uh, introduced to by mostly um, black organizers and activists, um, certainly people of color who were, you know, teaching me about the reproductive justice framework as the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to parent the children that we have in safe and healthy communities. So that really opened up um, a lot for me in terms of thinking about how I could tell stories and, and um, the kind of reporting that I wanted to do. So I've been, you know, covering that beat for the past seven years. Um, prior to that, I um, was a newspaper reporter. I also worked for uh, social justice organizations, um, civil rights organizations, Color of Change and Drug Policy Alliance. So I have 
about 20 years of kind of being back and forth between reporting um, and working as a strategist or as a comms person for different nonprofit organizations. So that's like my professional yeah. life. And then, you know, as we'll discuss, I'm a mother to my daughter, Isabel, who will be three next month. And oh. we live in Cincinnati, which is my hometown, um, which our hometown, uh, and my mom, we were very close with my mom and with her other grandmother. And yeah, we just, um, uh, have a really sweet life. And right now we're here in LA on vacation, which is also lovely. So it's very, and it's a win for me because I get to sit down with you. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. that's one of the joys of living in LA is that people always come through. Right. But I have been to Cincinnati. Oh yeah. I've been to Cincinnati once. I actually kind of really liked it. Surprisingly thought it was like a cute place. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's more to do there than people yeah. expect. We were there. My dad, one of my dad's best friends was the manager of the Reds. So we oh, were okay. there for baseball games. So we obviously had like that built in, but it was great. I had yeah. a great time. So your book is about, we kind of touched on this before just now, but I was saying to you that I kind of wasn't expecting to like really connect with your book because I'm not a mother and I don't think of myself in that way. But one of the things that's really special about your book is that it kind of reframes the idea of what it means to be a mother or mothering. And you kind of make a distinction between motherhood and mothering and like the act of mothering versus like the title mother. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about that and why it's important? Yeah. So this is, this is, um, something that I've learned from other black scholars and writers. I think most specifically, um, there's a book called revolutionary mothering. That's an anthology that was edited by China Martins, um, Alexis Pauline Gums, and Maya Williams. And it came out, I want to say like three years ago, maybe. And it's just this beautiful collection of essays and poetry and various reflections um, from people who are engaged in mothering in any number of ways. And the introduction really lays out, maybe it's not the introduction, but I know, you know, the, the kind of some point in the book early on that frames what the, what they're doing lays out this idea that, you know, motherhood is kind of this state of being. And we assume that we know who a mother is and what a mother looks like. Whereas if we think of mothering as caregiving and the kind of act of mothering, it really can be undertaken by anyone, you know, across gender, across, um, you know, biological ties, whether or not biological and blood ties are in place. Um, and so it really, I think, opens up our discussion um, when we talk about the act of mothering as opposed to these fixed ideas of who a mother is and like motherhood as, as a state of being. So, but then, you know, this is also um, something that I learned a lot from reading Patricia Hill Collins, who's a sociologist um, and really just you know, her writing has been critical in, in the scholarship of black motherhood, where she wrote a lot about other mothering, community mothering, again, really brought, broadening these ideas of what it means to mother. You know, we're not just talking about um, these kind of nuclear family units. We're talking about what it means to uh, feel responsible, maybe for your own child, but then certainly th that child's peers, because you realize that what's good for your kid is going to be good for the kids, you know, in the neighborhood, your, the peers. And so, or, um, you know, she also talked a lot about mothering as a kind of uh, foundational step toward community organizing and activism. Because once you're advocating on behalf of your family and your children, right. you begin to see what are the needs in this community. And so it's kind of like the, you know, she talked about ways in which it's, which it's been a stepping stone toward deeper community engagement. And so I was really informed by um, people like, you know, the the co-editors of that anthology, Patricia Hill Collins, Audra Lord, these people, um, mostly black people who have been writing about mothering in these ways that really blow up our kind of antiquated notions of what it means to be a mother. Right. It almost feels like mothering as community organizing in a sense that it's like a much bigger job than just having a child, right? Like that it is so much more involved in it and it requires, and you go through in your book, you have different sections. So there's birth, there's home, there's play, there's power, there's mm -hmm. spirit. Like there's all these different sections and each one touches on kind of a different aspect of mothering, but you look at them all together. And I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that I never had really thought about all these different roles that a mother figure has and how important these different spheres of life are and how intersectional they are, right? Mm -hmm. Like you talk about play and you talk about school 
And those two chapters are very similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are. Like that those two things, like the ability for a young child, black child, to be able to play freely and safely and to have the ability to make mistakes or throw a rock at another child and not be suspended for it and these types of, you know. So all that I found really interesting. Um, But one of the topics that I think is probably the most like hot button right now Mm -hmm. would be um, maternal Mm -hmm. mortality in, you know, especially for, or definitely for black women. And I'm sure the story that most people are familiar with was Serena Williams Mm -hmm. and her blood clots and how, you know, all this stuff. And you talk about your own birth story Mm -hmm. in the book and I believe, I think Tressie McMillan Cottom talks about it in her book, Thick, also. I read the essay, the part that was excerpted uh, in time. Okay, yeah. And she talks about a very similar story. story. She she was going into labor and like nobody believed her. Um, But I guess my question for you is, what are the ways that you feel like black women can advocate for themselves in those spaces, in the doctor's office, um, with their nurse, with their, you know, you talk a lot about midwives and doulas in the book also. So kind of just like, what are the, what are the places where you feel like we can make progress as black women? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the, the book is a really a mix of reporting and, uh, and memoir, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of reflections on like just my experiences as a new mom or as a pregnant person. Um, and so for the maternal, my, the first, the first chapter of the book, as you mentioned, is called birth. And it really is grounded in my experience with pregnancy and birth, but also this larger question of what's going on with the black maternal health crisis. Cause that's really what it is. When we mm-hmm. talk about the maternal health crisis in the United States, we're talking about black people, um, bearing the brunt of this, the crisis. Um, and so when I was in my, I think I was in my third trimester. Um, yeah, it was the summer before, um, before she was born, she was born in late August. I started reporting this story on, um, black maternal health and I knew the statistics. I knew that black, uh, women were three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy related complications. (sighs) I had, I, I knew the problem. I had read a lot about the problem, but I felt like there wasn't a lot of reporting on or rigorous discussion around potential solutions. And so, um, I started calling my contacts in reproductive justice organizing. I called, I remember I called Monica Simpson at sister song. I called, um, Jana Zenzi, who's a communications person who does a lot of work. Uh, she used to do a lot of work with the reproductive justice movement, but I started, I called national advocates for pregnant women. I started ta- reaching out to people who I had, uh, interviewed for other stories, but I figured they have to know about, you know, there's a whole um, world of birth justice that I, that my reporting reporting hadn't even touched on. So I started reaching out to them and really um, that's when I, and then I also dug into the medical journals and started reading the research and talking to, um, you know, uh, medical professionals, researchers and that kind of thing. And I, and what I learned was that, um, you know, implicit bias or racism, white supremacy is really a big part of the problem here is that, um, black people aren't being listened to when they start experiencing symptoms. Um, so you pointed it out with Serena Williams, you know, I have a history of blood clots and she's not being listened to. Um, and so I started learning about the ways in which, uh, black people were, you know, I, they knew, you know, we know when we don't feel well, right. right? But but when we have a nurse or an OB or someone um, assisting us in our pregnancy and birth who won't listen to us, that's very dangerous. I also started reading about um, really just the the physiological impacts of stress, right? Mm. What the ways in which white supremacy tears down our bodies. Mm. And so this is like structural racism. What does it mean when you can't get that loan to get your house in the neighborhood where you want, or you, um, your child is like, you know, three and getting kicked out of preschool or like these things where it's like, you actually have to deal with what that feels like and how you live a life in which you're constantly bombarded with these challenges that you shouldn't have to deal with. And then also just microaggressions and the daily slights, you know, somebody acting like they don't see you when you go into a store or they see you, you know, and they're following you around just these daily ways that we, Mm -hmm. that, um, that we experience white supremacy. And so I, the, what I began to learn. And so what I got curious about is what happens, um, when you, what if we started birthing with people who we believed could see our humanity? Right. So what if we began to cho- choose um, 
birth workers, whether it be an OB or a midwife or a doula who we feel like is grounded in the value system that we're grounded in and mm-hmm. who can, you know, really see us. So I think that that's one of, I think pe- people have a, a number of ideas about what can help. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, this kind of movement among black birth workers claiming the space and really yeah. um, training up. There's like all these training programs, you know, um, that are really focused on uh, building the core of black birth workers. And, and so I think that's one thing. I also think just knowing uh, what our rights are within medical settings. You know, mm-hmm. I talk in the book about I'm a journalist and I'm not particularly shy. I'm used to asking questions of experts, so-called experts. I'm used to like what it feels like when you're, um, you know, you don't, ex- you know that this person has a lot more knowledge than you and power right. than you. I'm, I'm practiced. That's my job is to ask questions of the powerful. Right. And so I realized that that was one way in which I was privileged because right. I didn't feel embarrassed asking, making a total nuisance of myself. And that, but I think that that's something that we all should feel empowered to do is, you know, ask these questions. So I think that there are a number of things that we can do. I also think, you know, my, the story that came from that reporting, it was a cover story in the nation that, um, came out February of 2017. And that forms the kind of basis of the first chapter of the book. I think that we've seen this explosion in reporting on the black maternal health crisis in the, in the past two years. Yeah. Right? We saw that beautiful New York times cover story by Linda Villarosa. We've seen the um, collaboration between NPR and ProPublica really drawing attention to the maternal health crisis. And finally, putting a fine point on the the fact that this is this is about race right you know this is not right. a maternal health crisis that everyone's experiencing that black people black families are are um really on the front lines of this battle right so you don't know this but my, some of my listeners do my husband's actually an OBGYN. wow and um one of the things that he and i talk about a lot and he's white and one of the things we talk about a lot is and his practice um there's 25 doctors and i want to say or ob's and i want to say about 10, eight or 10 of them are black women, oh, wow. which was something that stuck out to me yeah. as soon as he got hired there. Cause I was like, that's, this isn't normal, right? Like yeah. the people you work with, that's not who normal people see when they go like that percentage just can't possibly be adequate. Like that can't be the medium or what medium across the country, because there's no way it's <laughs> so many, right. but, you know, like, and so yeah. that's one of the things when I think like, oh, when I have kids, like I'm so lucky that my husband works at a place with this percentage. And that's just the OBs, but um, I think three of the four midwives are black wow. men. It's just like crazy. I mean, he, yeah. his hospital is in Baldwin Hills area. So that's a very black population, yeah. but still. And I think like, I think that that has been really helpful for him as well as a white man to be in a place where you see all these powerful black women who are doing the work. And I, there's no, I don't have a study that says his hospital is doing any better than anyone else's, but just the comfort level of Mm -hmm. that, you know, I feel like that's gotta be pretty special for those patients, like that they walk in and they have that option. Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, you know, I had my daughter in date actually in Dayton, which is like 45 minutes North of Cincinnati, but I had lived in the San Francisco Bay area. That's where I'm from. Okay. I'm from Oakland. Yeah. Which I heard a lot in your book. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I lived in Oakland for, you know, six or seven years. I lived in New York city for a long time. Um, I've lived in these different – I worked at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, so I lived in Milwaukee. I interned at the Miami Herald, so I lived in Miami very briefly. But I've lived a lot of different places around the country, and I know you're exactly right. It depends on where you are, you right. know, where you are in the country or even within a city that's right. going to dictate what kind of care you right. have access to. And we, my husband and I were just talking about this last night. Something This was totally unrelated, but he was telling me about a patient who wanted to have a hysterectomy and was very young. And he had to pass it on to his boss. And I was like, oh, do you think your boss will approve it? And he was like, yeah, I think so. She usually does whatever the patients want. But I was like, that's so crazy that if this woman had gone to a doctor at, you know, in in Nevada or in Fresno or mm-hmm. another, mm-hmm. he mentioned another hospital here in LA, mm-hmm. they probably would have gotten told no. Yeah. And like that to me is one of the biggest travesties of the healthcare system is that people aren't able to get the same healthcare and it's so dependent on your zip code or your doctor's zip code or, you know, I think that's like really a big, big problem Yeah, that like the rights of the patient are determined by the doctors and that's determined kind of like by where you are. Yeah. And also who the patient is, right? Because right. some, 
you know, there's a lot of conversation around reproductive coercion and who actually gets pressured to get a hysterectomy right. or an IUD or right. some other kind of long-acting right. reversible contraception. Yeah, there's just so much there. Um, I do kind of want to move off this yeah. a little bit to education. Sure. And it's kind of connected, actually. You talk about um, in the book about education and about diversity in schools and this idea of like children of color versus black and brown children mm. um, and how, you know, I, I believe it's a friend of yours, her <laughs> yeah. child's in a school with like lots of children of color, but it's mostly like um, Asian Americans, children and white children, and that her child or children were the only black or brown children in the classroom. And then that kind of brought to this conversation about teachers. Mm-hmm. And just because a teacher is black or brown doesn't necessarily mean that a teacher is an advocate for black and brown children. And I think that kind of ties into the doctor conversation because just because your doctor is black and brown doesn't mean that they're not also influenced by white supremacy or the feeling that they need to follow the standards of white supremacy. And I just, I wonder like what you think, like, I wonder how teachers can do better by students and how schools can do better by black and brown students specifically, as Mm -hmm. opposed to this idea of, of color, Mm -hmm. which generally tends to wash out black and brown. Yeah. It's a lot. That's a big question. No, no, no. I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, so you're referring to, um, Aya Leon, who's a writer, um, uh, and academic who lives in Berkeley and she's, she was talking and I'm glad you brought this up because I feel in some ways, I feel like this is a very California conversation. Yeah. I think because so. what she was talking about actually, um, is that she had had her daughter, um, at different points in schools where a lot of people identified as being of color, but they might be like, maybe they have a black grandparent. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, so they're like, they might identify as being even black or just like of color or multiracial, but they're very light skinned and possibly even white passing or the, the, you know, Latinx or, or Asian or, but just like that people are multiracial, but how does that read differently when there's essentially very, very light skinned and white passing and like having access to white privilege. Um, and that she felt very clear as, someone who has uh, like explicitly, you know, a phenotypically black child, like a Mm. brown skinned child, that even though her daughter might be in class with other of color kids, that being black is a very specific thing. And and so she experienced the classroom in a a particular way, which I'm just, I'm glad you brought that up because I felt like that's a really important point that she made because we talk about diversity in such basic ways that don't really get at the complexities of like, well, skin color, like let's also talk about skin color, not just like culture or heritage. Right. And also proximity to whiteness. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that comes up a lot too, like with like the model immigrant idea, Mm. right? Like I think that those are all tied together, that the darkness of a child is not, it's not simply just about being diverse or of color, but that it it is a spectrum, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point about teachers, like what can teachers do? Um, I think that there's, you know, the the other um, person in the book who speaks a lot to this is a woman named Jessica Black, who also lives in the Bay Area. She's in Pittsburgh, California, so East Bay. And she's talk, she talked to me a lot about the struggles that her black children have had um, in in school. And so that she really opened up an interesting conversation around discipline, because in addition mm. to being a mom, she's also she works for the Black Organizing Project on like the school to prison pipeline. So right. she's coaching parents who are dealing, you know, who are supporting their children through disciplinary proceedings. And she herself as a parent has been through disciplinary proceedings with her as her children are being you know suspended or experiencing mm-hmm. some other kind of um, discipline. And so, you know, one of the things that I learned from her and from the research that I, that I've done, I'm also, I used to be a schools reporter when I was at the journal Sentinel. So this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. Mm. Um, you know, I think that there, one of the things that teachers can do, educators can do, because it also is something, um, that falls on the shoulders of administrators is just to think seriously about these areas of discipline that are highly subjective, right? So this whole category of, um, Oh, what's it called? Um, it's basically I'll, like I'll the defiance. Yeah, thing. willful defiance, willful defiance right? Yeah, um, willful defiance, which is like, okay, uh, what exactly d- is the child's behavior actually like 
a threat, you know, or are you re- because of who you are culturally and your mm-hmm. kind of read, are you experiencing it as something that really is just a challenge to your authority that you want to squash as quickly as possible? Right. So I think one of the things that educators can do is look at these broad, and this is happening, right? You have some districts that are doing away with willful defiance right. as a disciplinary category, like for certain, you know, grades um, or district wide. Uh, but looking at these highly subjective discipline categories um, and realizing that these are areas where racism and white supremacy can creep in and dictate who is actually being pushed out of classrooms right. and then understanding how high the stakes are, you know, when in the school to prison pipeline, I mean, what, what is meant by that is you, you cut down on the classroom time uh, that a student has and you all, all of a sudden there, the chances that they're going to have contact with law enforcement, you know, increase, um, their lifetime earnings, you know, you're, you're talking about cutting into not only their ability mm-hmm. to like pass or graduate, but how much money are they going to be able to make? How employable are they going to be right. um, over the course wow. of their lives? I never thought of it that taking it quite that far, I guess, in my mind. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the useful, that's something that's useful about that whole frame of the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. It talks about, you have to think about this student's life, you know, um, possibilities and expectations over the course of their life. Just because you got fed up because they slammed a book on the table or raised their voice, what are you doing that could possibly, you know, really affect how, how, how their lives unfold? Right. Before we move off your book, which we're not really going to move off because I have a lot of questions that I'll circle back to it later, but Mm -hmm. what is the best advice that you received? Because a lot of your book is also kind of you searching for answers for yourself and your family. Right. Um, So what's the best advice you received or something that maybe you would pass on to someone else? How to raise children who are active and engaged. There's a whole section on that, which I found really amazing. But I guess for for Black children, but also for, for a lot of people who I feel like it's very you know, in right now, which in a good way, and not to, not to be divisive or anything, but it's very mm-hmm. in to want to make sure that you're parenting your children to be aware of, yeah. you know, privilege and bias and racism and all that stuff. So what kind of advice can you give for parents to like raise better white boys or yeah. raise better black women or raise better, you know, Honduran yeah. gender non-binary, sure. you know, like how can we be doing better by our children as parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the best advice that I got and it came up again and again was just the importance of community. Mm. You know, I moved home to Cincinnati, um, after from the Bay area where I lived, as I mentioned, and I've lived in these places where there is the like amazing, um, childcare co-op or preschool co-op. It's mm-hmm. all these, politicized parents of color who are thinking really critically about the curriculum that they're going to put together so that their kids are playing together and learning together. Um, I've lived in these cities where, you know, you have dance Africa and um, just these incredible cultural offerings that are just part of living in New York city, for example. Right. And so living back in the Midwest, I have had a lot of questions um, I've, I've had to do a lot of soul searching around, like, maybe I should just move back to one mm-hmm. of my favorite cities on the coast because it's, I can see more easily how I can expose my daughter to the things that I want for her and right. her life. And when I would bring that up with people, um, there's a great exchange in the book that I have with, um, this woman named Kimia Moyo, who's a, um, uh, retired educator. She worked in Cincinnati public schools for many years, but she's also, she's just lived all over the world. She's incredible. And she says, you know, um, you can't make excuses for yourself. Like Mm. you can't say if only we were in LA or whatever, you have to create that community for your child, wherever you are. And it's possible. Don't think that it's not possible. And so in many ways, um, and then I also interview another elder, um, Rosalind Prudhomme, who she's was born and raised in Barbados. And she talks about the importance of that village, mm-hmm. you know, like it beyond her nuclear family, that it was a village who took responsibility for children and, um, having those conversations and others really made me check my, really my snobbery, mm-hmm. right? Cause really what I'm saying is like, Oh, I'm here in my hometown and it's so backwards and this and that. But the reality is I grew up there. Right. And you're fine. And I'm fine. You're more than fine. You're <laughs> you thriving. Know? Yeah. And like I had people and how, how did I grow up there? Because I had people who cared about me and mm-hmm. who loved me and who would say, oh, this art exhibit is in town. Let's go. Oh, um, have you read this book? I think you'd love it, you know, right. or like, let's go on that trip to Chicago so we can see this museum. And so 
Um, so just back to this point of like, yes, exposure, right. But also that, um, responsibility of exposure shouldn't just fall on the parent's shoulders. Mm -hmm. It's important that you put together a team of people who love your child, who are also going to take responsibility for raising them up. Right. So right now I'm here because my two dear dear friends, Adrian Brown and Jody Tanita, are with my three-year-old, walking her on the beach, Aww. telling her stories. And they've been, even though we don't live in the same city, we live in three different cities. That's my, you know, those are my girls. That's my family. Right. And they've known my daughter since she was born. And so I think that the best advice I got was to put together that community, be around like-minded people who are going to who share your values and are going to help you instill those values in your child. Right. And I kind of I kind of feel like what I also hear you saying is to people who maybe aren't the parent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. show up. Yep. Offer to take, you know, your your friend's kid to the museum to an exhibit that maybe the parent wouldn't be exposed to. You know, like exactly. it's not just about it's not just responding and ask for people who are asking for help, but right. also being proactive mother type figure or father type figure Mm -hmm. or parent type figure and saying, Oh, you know, like I have goddaughters and I like to, you know, my goddaughter got an honor roll. So we took her out to like a really nice dinner, which is just something that she wouldn't have done because I'm the nerdy aunt who's really cares about reading in school. You know, it's like, that was something that I was like, I can take this on and like figuring out the things that you can take on, even if you're not the parent to help you know, raise that child on your own. That's right. Yeah. I think it's critical. I think, um, a lot of people get into these, you know, I've been taught, I've had a few conversations recently with women who are like in their late forties or early forties or coming up on mid forties who feel really ambivalent about having kids, but Mm -hmm. also feel like what's wrong with me? You know, am I going to regret not doing this? And and I understand that Mm -hmm. and I'm not, but I also think there are so many ways that you can show up in a child's life and build those relationships and it's just worth considering. And then also the peers, like when, as you build those communities, um, you want adults in your child's life who are going to care for them, but also they need to kind of curating Mm. their peers, right? So you can grow them up together. And, you know, they have like these friendships that last over years, decades even, and you and the, and the other child's caregivers, you share values. So you do you know, okay, there's a March. Are we going to take our kids? Let's, let's help them make signs so that they have some understanding of what we're out here marching about or talking about. So curating a, a peer group for them, I think is another part of that community That's so brilliant. I love that. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, okay, we're going to move towards other people's books now. Okay. So something that we do here is called Ask the Stacks, where listeners send in like a question. Uh, they're looking for a book recommendation. Oh, okay. And they email us at askingthestacks at gmail.com. And so today's one is like pretty open. So I didn't even prep you at all on this. So okay. we'll see how you do. Okay, this is from Tiffany K. Tiffany says, I'm a former avid reader, only now getting back to pleasure reading after finishing a doctoral program and a subsequent monograph project for Rutledge and three kids deep. That's insignificant compared to the fact that I now finally have time for guiltless free reading. I tend to like books that feel real if they're fiction or have some historical or religious tie-in. I'm not personally religious, but I find it fascinating. I like biographies, though I haven't read a ton, and I don't particularly care for sci-fi or anything futuristic. I'd love to be exposed to authors of color, unique bits of history, or anything you might suggest. I don't have staying power, so it has to get me interested right away. And then she gave a few books that she liked. Okay. So she said The Joy Luck Club, Columbine, Prozac Nation, Virgin Suicides, and Stiff. So like a lot of books. I'll give I, – I obviously got this in advance, so I'll yeah. give a few of my answers while you mm-hmm. think, okay? <laughs> so my first one for you, um, Tiffany, is The Mothers by Britt Bennett. <gasps> I love that book. It's a great book. It kind of is not really – it's a little bit about religion. It's just a really great story. Mm-hmm. It's really well written, and the cover's gorgeous. Um, and then for your religious love, I picked Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer, which is about this like murder and the Mormon fundamentalist church, and it's crazy. And anything by John Krakauer, I highly recommend, but this one's great. And then the other one that's kind of a unique little bit of history is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's science It's about this time in America. It's about this black woman. It's actually written by a white woman, so it's not an author of color, but it's a story about a black woman um, and her family and the medical industry. And it's pretty captivating from the start. So those would be my three. You don't have to do three. You can do one. Yeah. <laughs> you can also have time to think. Don't worry. I, so I'll second the mothers. I okay. think that that is what that that touches on. She said that she wants something that will grab her from the start. That's yeah. just a great easy read. It will yeah. grab you, and it is about religion. It is very, about religion, in kind of a subtle way. Kind of you know, it's about a preacher's kid. Yeah, it um, has a religious tie-in. Yeah. This, you know, I'll just mention this. There's a book called The Buddha by Karen Armstrong. Okay. It's a very. It's just a. It's a um, pretty easy to read um, telling of the Buddha's life. Mm. Like if you have any interest in Buddhism, it's a way to kind of get yourself situated and understanding like who was the Buddha, you know, what was this kind of transformation from, you know, a prince um, fifth century BC into this, um, you know, this uh, spiritual figure. Um, who is obviously revered today. And, and, you know, I, I write in the book, actually my, one of my chapters is about my spiritual practice and, and kind of what I think about the, a parent's role in giving their child a moral compass and a kind of spiritual grounding. And I, I write about, you know, having grown up Christian and as an, but as an adult um, coming into Buddhism and, and meditation. And so that was one of the first books that I read that kind of got me situated, um, so yeah, I would recommend Karen Armstrong's The Buddha if you have any interest in, in That's that. That's so good. Also in your book, you talk about doing like a week-long silent retreat, mm-hmm. which I thought sounded amazing and also like my personal nightmare because <laughs> I cannot talk, which right. is why I created a podcast. People <laughs> have to listen to me talk all the time when no one else is home. Yeah. Okay. So now it's time for your questions from the Stacks Questionnaire. We always start here. Two books you love and one book you hate. And it can just be today. It doesn't have to be all time. It can just be, mm-hmm. you know, not too much pressure. I love uh, Paradise by Toni Morrison. Mm. I love this book called uh, Women Who Run With Wolves, Women Who the, Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. It's just this kind of like epic um, look at the myths, like myth- mythology around femininity mm-hmm. and, um, and the psyche. I, I always come back to that book. Um, a book that I hate... 
This is so random that this popped into my head. There's this book. So, okay, Across Five Aprils. It's like, I don't even know. So this has me thinking about how um, middle school literature, like the literature that I don't know how old you are, but I feel like certainly when I was in like sixth through eighth grades, we read all these books where it was like, why is this the assignment? Why is this the curriculum for middle age readers? And this book across five Aprils is this telling of these families involved in in the civil war. It's really funny that that just popped into my head, but I think it's a larger commentary on like um, how I went through this whole period of life as a preteen where um, the books I was being introduced to through school were just not, not great. Yeah, I think that that's that was true for me. Also, I also wonder like cuz there's some books that you read in school that like everyone's like, "Yeah, we read that in school." Mm-hmm. Like we read what's the conch? Um Oh yeah, yeah. Um Lord of the whatever. Lord, Lord of the, the Flies, Flies. I was, or a separate piece. Yeah, so we read that like and I feel like everyone reads that. But then I also read Ender's Game in middle school. Yeah, that's is that another common? I think that is common. I don't even like I I'm like it was a video it's game random. book. It's so it's random. It's so random the books you get assigned as a junior high student. And like Go Why? Ask Alice we read, which was like a little aggressive I feel like for 6th <laughs> grade, but it was like part of sex ed. Right. And right. we read it out loud and I'll never forget. Awkward. Yeah, our teacher read it out loud to us and I'll never forget this kid in my class was like I guess there was a part where it says like anal sex or something. And someone was like, what's anal sex? And another kid in class into like goes, it's when you have sex in the butthole. Well, and I was like, I feel like this is getting out of control. Like as a student, I was like, I feel like you guys have lost the room. Like, I don't know about this. This might've been a take home. We didn't need to read this out loud. I don't know about the out loud part, but anyways, what's the last like really great book you read? Well, you know, I really liked um, An American Marriage. Mm. You know, I don't read a lot of fiction. Yeah. Um, I very rarely read fiction, actually. But then every once in a while, it's usually my mom will turn me on to something she's reading in her book club. Um, And I, you know, books. So the time that I have to read, the time when I I could read would be after I put my daughter to bed. Mm -hmm. So basically like, you know, from nine to midnight, I could read. Mm -hmm. And what I'd much rather do after I clean my kitchen is sit and watch television. Mm. I'm going to be just honest. I watch like, you know, um, these amazing series that are on TV right now. But I I remember with uh, An American Marriage, just I would, you know, I would put her to sleep and I couldn't wait to get back Mm. to what was happening because, you know, it just, it was such a quick and easy read. So that's the last book I read that I got really excited about. That actually might be a really good recommendation for Tiffany. Mm. That's probably a good one. Mm -hmm. That's pretty compelling from the start. And it's an author of color. That's right. It's a really good story. Tyari Jones. And I also just love, like, now, um, I'm also, I love podcasts and uh, mm. sex. Oh, what's the Anna Sales sex, podcast? Sex, drugs, and money or something. Yeah, yeah. sex, death, and money. Sex, sex death, death, and money. money. Um, I've, Tyari Jones has been on there twice. Oh, she and, has? Yeah, and the interviews are so One time Anna Sales interviewing her, the other time she's interviewing, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget, but it's like this brilliant black artist. Um, it's not Betty Sarr. I'm like, it's okay. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, please do. It's, this just came out like two weeks ago. Okay, perfect. Um, but anyway, so in addition to really loving the book, I love to listen to her just talk Mm -hmm. about her life and her interests. She's really great. She's really brilliant. Um, what are you reading right now? Oh man, what am I reading right now? I'm reading, um, well, I just finished the light of the world, which I'm excited for us to talk about. We'll talk about that next week. And, um, you know, I'm reading a ton of news, which is what I do. Um, that's allowed job. That's more than allowed. You don't have to read a book. I know. There's so much news right now. I read a lot of news. What's your go-to publication? I'm so boring. The New York times. That's the first thing I read every day. Yeah. Boring times. I mean, not boring, but like, um, it's pretty expected. Um, but yeah, I read, I read the times just to get a sense for what's happening in the world. And, um, I listen to the daily. I really like the daily podcast though. Recently, I have to be honest in the last few months, I've started being more selective when I listen. I used to listen to every episode and now I'm kind of like, do I care? Cause they did a few that was like, one was like Mitch McConnell and then one was like Lindsey Graham. And I was like, I don't know that I need to have these people humanized right now when they're doing like such (laughs) shitty stuff in the world. Like, I don't know. I don't need like Michael Barbaro to be like, Hmm, why do you think Mitch McConnell? Like, you know, so like I started getting a little bit more like, do I want to listen today? Yeah. No, that I I would say the same. And I also, one thing about just getting older, I'm like, I am very ignorant when it comes to 
um, international news. Mm -hmm. And I want to like at least kind of know the gist of what's happening, global trends. But if he's going to do a deep dive on some issue that I just know that it's not, it's taking up space that I need to have focused on some domestic issue. I'm going to skip it. I'm the same. I am the same. Like they did the whole like Brexit trilogy or quadrilogy or whatever. And I listened to the first two and then I was like, I can't do this. Right, right. I will say before we move on, I just read the Elizabeth Warren profile in the New Yorker and I really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, it's good. It gets into the details of like, well, how does she expect to pay for all this stuff? And um, yeah, I really... Uh, I enjoyed that. So I will also say I'm a, I'm a New Yorker reader. So usually the last the last thing I read was probably like Hilton Alls or um, um, the TV critic Emily Nussbaum. Mm, her uh, book just came out. Oh, I didn't it's know. It's right that. behind you. It's called oh. I Like to Watch and it's about TV. You probably would like it. Oh, yeah. It's about like the new age of television. Yeah. She's real smart. Yeah, she is really smart. Real I like smart. her. I like her criticism a lot. So probably the last thing I read was. You know, if not something on the New York Times website, something by uh, Hilton Alls or Vincent Cunningham or Emily or yeah, Emily Nussbaum in the New Yorker, and that and that uh, Elizabeth Warren profile I thought was quite good. Mm. Do you have any books that are coming out soon that you're or that are newly released that you're looking forward to? Um, yeah, there's a book called Motherhood So White by Nefertiti Nefertiti Austin. I think uh, her book is coming out later this year. And I think is important. Um, I haven't read it yet, but uh, you know, there. I think there are a lot of books right now that are challenging this kind of traditional understanding of motherhood as being the province of white writers and white mm. women. And uh, she's a black woman who's writing about her experience. Um, I don't think Imani Perry's book is out yet. Is it a letter to my sons? I don't know. And I'm not even sure that that's the title, but it is a. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I don't care. Don't worry. Yeah. I, honestly, nobody remembers book titles and authors. Like I, I myself, if I don't like write it down, I mess it up. Yeah. So don't worry. No, and you even gave me a heads up. But don't worry. Um. And so Imani Perry's book is a you know um touches on parenting. She's a black woman. I'm very excited to read that book. And then I just saw that um. Edwidge Dandicott has a book coming out at the end of August that I'm excited. I don't know who that well. is. She's a Haitian American writer based in Miami. Okay. Um, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, do you read multiple, like, can you hold multiple books in your mind at a time or are you a one, like a, what I like to call a one book pony? No, I, you should see my bedside table at home. It's just covered in books. Yeah. And, and that's really, that's because I don't do a lot of reading just for pleasure. I okay. read to find out. I read because I have a question mm. um, that I need the answer to. So um, there's probably like a book on my bedside. There is, in fact, a book on my bedside about um, like autoimmune disorder because I'm I have a lot of questions around you know mm. autoimmune disorder right now that I'm trying to understand that I understand. Um, there, I know for sure that Women Who Run with the Wolves is on my bedside table because I've been interested in. Um, symbolism and like dreams, dream meaning, and, um, just thinking about womanhood. And so I'm, I, that's a book that I often turn to. Um, so I am not a one book book person. Mm-hmm. I typically have like half a dozen questions that I'm Got trying it. to sort through. And I have gone to the library and gotten at least half a dozen books that are going to help me figure out, learn more about whatever that question is. And is that kind of how you work when you're researching for your own stuff? Like you kind of start with a question and pull a bunch of books. For sure. So when I was working on um, We Live for the We, you know, I remember early on, I, um, there's a Sheree Mara. I, I heard from, I actually went to a presentation, um, this uh, group that's based in Southern California, Chicana Motherwork. They just came out with an anthology called Chicana Motherwork. I went to a presentation and learned through that talk that Sheree Moraga had written a book about being pregnant and giving birth. And so I think that book is called Waiting in the Wings, but I'm not sure. Um, and so I was like, okay, I want to read this. I reread um, the Anne Lamott book about being pregnant. And, oh, no, it's about the first year of her son's mm. life. Um, it's not Bird by Bird, which is another great Anne Lamott book. Um but so I read that. I read Asha Bandele's Something Like Beautiful, which is about her experience as a single mother. Um, I, you know, 
went back to my Audre Lord. So yeah, I surrounded myself with books that mm-hmm. I knew were going to help me at least know what the existing literature was mm-hmm. and then figure out like, what are the, some of these people have questions that are similar to mine. How did they answer them for themselves? Right. So yeah, that was very much a part of my process in writing the book. That's such an interesting, I never really thought about approaching your writing with like the questions. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that is something that makes your work very powerful because it feels like your reader is going along with you and kind of figuring it out too and getting to ask their own questions. Like it feels like a safe space for questioning, I think, Mm -hmm. which is really nice. Um, Do you have a favorite bookstore specifically in Cincinnati? Yeah, I do. Um, So our major independent bookstore is called Joseph Beth Booksellers. And um, yeah, I love Joseph Beth. I did my launch event there when the book came out April 2nd. I was in conversation with my dear friend, um, local superstar writer, Kathy Y. Wilson, um, longtime columnist for Cincinnati City Beat. She and I were in conversation there at Joseph Beth and um, the bookseller there, Michael Link, is fantastic and brings through incredible authors mm. so that we in Cincinnati have you know access to these great writers. Um, so I like Joseph Beth. I also, um, my friends own a record store called Shake It Records. It's just down the street from my house. And it is primarily a record store and they focus on vinyl, but they have a great books. Uh, it's mostly a used book selection, but they have um, new books as well. And so I go in there. It's just a favorite place to stop by and browse. I love a used book. I know. I too. love a used book. <laughs> it makes me so excited. I love like when there's like a note in it oh, or yes. something or like someone else's bookmark or yes. like a weird, like a phone number. Oh, I'm so <laughs> into it. It's like a mystery. For your <laughs> listeners, the look on her face is amazing right now. She- <laughs> I love a used book. <laughs> she talks about her love True. for used books. Uh, what's a book that you like to recommend to people? Mm. Gosh. I mean, this is such a kind of great, but... Americana. Mm, such a good book. It's so great. I mean, and I'm realizing, I'm recognizing a pattern, right? I need a book that's like as, that's like as visually stimulating mm-hmm. as a TV show. I need like an easy yeah. read. I need like some love in there. Yeah. You know, I need yeah, some romance. Totally. Um, I need these, I need a vivid black woman as yeah. the protagonist, you know, vividly drawn black woman as the protagonist, woman as the protagonist. Um, yeah, I love Americana. Um, that's another good one for Tiffany. That is another. I was going to put it on my list, but I feel like I talk about it a lot. Yeah, so I was like too scared to like. Add I it. know I was too scared <laughs> to say it. No, but it's, but it's so good. If you haven't read it, it's. I read it. I was on vacation in Portugal, and I remember mm. it was like my family, so my brother and his fiance, and my mom and her boyfriend, and my husband and I, and everyone was like out by the pool, and I was up in this room up above, like <laughs> looking out over the like the resort and I just was like curled up and I had a tea and I had my book and I was like, I don't need to be around any of these people. I have my friends and my book. It's just like a really good story. Yeah, it is a good story. It's a, it's a great story. As you were talking, I also, I, um, I think that people, often people I come in contact with are familiar with James Baldwin's essays, but Mm -hmm. I actually, um, am much more familiar with his novels. And so I find myself recommending, um, Another's country, another country, or Giovanni's room to yeah. people. It we just, did Giovanni's room on the show. It was the yeah. like third book we ever did. It's just it may, it puts me right back in like my early twenties or college yeah. years, like reading Baldwin and feeling like my mind was being open to all of these, you know, thinking about um, Paris and you know what it meant to be black in the in the fifties and sixties right. and. Um, yeah, so I that's a recommendation that I make to people who like are talking to me about James Baldwin's um you know thinking and but th- as expressed through his essays right. I often find myself saying but have you read Go Tell It on the Mountain? Right. Right. Yeah. I don't feel like people I feel like most people think of him as one or the yeah. other and mm-hmm. don't recognize that he did so much of both. Yeah. And really well. Yeah, which is rare, I think. Yeah. To do both so well. Um, Just can I, now that we're yeah, talking, I'm yeah, like, keep oh. going. No, I so, love it. I mean, again, this is another one that I'm sure you've talked about a ton on here, but I think, um, KSA Lehman's memoir heavy is just oh, like, so good. It's amazing. And, um, he was on death. Sex yeah, he was. With oh, that Damon. Conver- man. Oh my God. That so conversation good. was incredible. Holy shit. That was Dave. So Damon had come on the podcast right, I think before they had recorded it. 
and or I right after they recorded, but before it had aired, and he's like, "Oh, just like check it out." And as soon as it did, I like sent him a message. I was like, "Holy shit!" It was so brilliant. So it was so brilliant, oh yo. And then the funny thing, I, I feel like that conversation opens with Damon being like. He had to ask Casey for something. I think it was a blurb. And he's like, I felt like I was asking yes. you to the prom. He and- talked about that on our <laughs> podcast too. He was like, it was so scary. Cause because Damon's blurbs are like, it's like Kiese and like Ibram Kendi. It's like right. all of my favorite writers. Right. And I asked him, I was like, how did you get all these blurbs? I feel like Rebecca Traster did yeah. it or something. It was like crazy blurb action. And he yeah. talked about how he it's was like scary. so scary. It's scary. We have the same agent, Tanya McKinnon. Oh, you do. So that's your agent helps can help a ton. But I also, um, you know, I have a blurb from KSA as well. And yeah. I was like, it did kind of feel like I was going to do the prom. <laughs> you have amazing blurbs too. Thank you. You have really, like, I, I never used to pay attention to blurbs, but now I do because of the show. And right. I'm always like, how did you get such good people? Yeah. I feel like email, you know, it's not like you have to go right up in someone's face and mm. ask them and like bear your heart and ask them to do right. something. So email, you can kind of hide behind like the keyboard. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I mean, Heavy is like, I'm only read it once. I need to go back and read it at least one more time. But I just, man, I mean, he, that is the conversation we need to be having about um, so many things, but I think a lot of, like I said, my reading is driven by my questions and mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions about black masculinity. Mm. I have a lot of questions about black masculinity and that, um, I just found so much, um, not solace, but like, uh, I felt met in my questions, mm. you know, I felt like, oh wow, he's willing to offer some answers that aren't really that pretty and that are really complicated. Right. I am going to suggest a book to you. Um, that comes out in October. It's called How We Fight for Our Lives mm. by Saeed Jones. Yes, that is. Yep. And I read that. it. And is it poetry? No, it's his like it's memoir. His memoir. And okay. it is, he's a queer black man. Mm-hmm. And it's about him and his mother and their relationship, but also his like finding himself in his queerness as a black man from Texas and what that means and the violence that he perpetrates against himself and against other people in that process. And this whole thing about how you communicate with your mom and all this stuff. And when I was reading it, I thought this is the queer side mm-hmm. of the Kiese layman coin. Mm-hmm. Not that they're necessarily the same at all, but they're in conversation with each other. Mm-hmm. Like this idea of black masculinity when it comes to a man who's queer and like what that means and those stereotypes and how, you know, it's just, yeah. and the writing is unreal because he's a poet and kind of like the light of the world which we'll talk about next week there's something about when a poet writes a memoir where you're just like this is art like this shit is crazy you're a professional writer exactly like i love the term (laughs) professional writer which i use for people who write beautifully about real shit and like they get they get it so how we fight for our lives i believe is what it's called and it comes out in october and High recommend. It's probably the best thing I've read this year so far. Boom. I will order it. Yeah. Check it out. That's the last book I recommended. (laughs) So I want to go back to the school thing that we were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier. Mm -hmm. If you were teaching school, let's say middle school, because that's what we're talking about, what would you recommend to someone? Oh, interesting. Or high school, if that's, you know, just kids. Yeah. It's a great question. (laughs) Because the books that, like in high school, I remember the books that stood out were like, we read Heart of Darkness. We read Ethan Frome. I was just like, why are these the books? Like, as a black girl <laughs> sitting in those classrooms, not to say I shouldn't have like been exposed to those books as well, but as part of a much more diverse right. and inclusive right. um, curriculum. So, you know, um, my English teacher, my, my 11th grade English teacher, tried to teach us their eyes were watching God. Okay. He did. I really respect this person a lot, but I will say he did a terrible job because he wasn't familiar with the book right. at okay. all. Um, and he was an older white man trying to teach, um, trying to teach this book because someone told him that he should, and he mm. just wasn't prepared. But I wish that someone had taught me that book well as mm-hmm. a 17 year old or 16 year old, that would have um, been very fun and exciting to, to yeah. feel like there was class time set aside for me to really explore that book. Yeah, I mean it's funny. We mentioned Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. I, my when I was in high school, we were not taught Beloved, but the grades coming up behind me were. I would have loved to read um, Sula or Tar mm-hmm. Baby in high school. 
I've only read two Toni Morrison books, oh, yeah. and both of them were for this show. Okay. So we did The Bluest Eye last year, and then this year, do you know Damaris B. Hill? I don't. She wrote a book of poetry that came out this year called um, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Okay. And she came here, and we did Beloved, mm. and the whole episode, like, you can just hear me being like, whoa. <laughs> like, because I didn't love the book when I read it. I kind yeah. of was like, I don't know. I don't know if I get this. I'm not super into fiction. Like, I don't know. Yeah. And she just, like changed my whole life wow. like it, it's amazing and that kind of like what you're saying about the teacher didn't know how to teach her yeah. as we're watching yeah. god i feel like that's kind of like what we were talking about earlier this idea that like just because a teacher is white or black doesn't mean that they're right good. right and i think that especially is true when it comes to like teaching literature and like teaching these books that are so complicated and damaris had read beloved i think like seven times yeah. i read it once so that was also like us coming from these two different places but I think that like if you had a really great teacher, mm -hmm. there's so many books yeah. that could be amazing. And if you had a shitty teacher, there's so many books that could be shitty. Yeah. Like it's so dependent on the teacher. Like we read The Awakening by like the Chopin sisters yeah. or whatever. It's and like, I was like, Oh yeah, I remember reading that. This is a nightmare. Yeah, like why? Just like, why? why? Like I mean, truly there's so many other things. I didn't to finish read. it. Turns out, spoiler alert, it. there's like a suicide right. at the end. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think t thinking of back on high school, um, I, I love memoirs, you know, yeah. so I'm thinking of like Patti Smith's Just Kids, mm. like about, you know, her and Robert Maplethorpe. Yeah. Like I would just, I think if I were teaching a high school class, I would just assign a ton of memoirs. Right. Because when, when I was a teenager, all I wanted to do was imagine what my life could be like. Right. And it's like such a window into yeah. Yeah. what could be possible if yeah. you do this or that, if you totally. move to New York or if you stay put and try to start this right. thing, or if you have a kid at 18, you know, it's right. like, and with a memoir, you also can see other people's pain mm, and other people's right. joy and that these like there's a it's like definitely a window into another life whether yeah. it's like a possibility or a thank god that's not me or oh my god that is me yeah. i'm not alone when yeah. i was in high school i one of my biggest regrets is I had this great African-American history teacher, Mr. Green, and he assigned like really great stuff and we did like awesome stuff in my class. And he assigned the autobiography of Malcolm X and I did not read it in high mm. school. But then right after I graduated college, I did. And I remember being like, holy shit, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. And I feel like I wish I'd read it when I had a teacher to like help yeah. me go through it. Yeah. But I don't know if I would, would have been ready right. at 17. It's funny because, um, Autobiography of Malcolm X was assigned as summer reading mm. heading into either senior year. It was a assignment. It was a social studies assignment heading into either junior or senior year. And you know, it's like, um, read it over the summer, but we're never going to talk about it. I went right. to a predominantly white high school. Right. I never had a non-white teacher kindergarten wow. through 12th grade. Holy cow. Um, and so these are my memories of like, even when they thought they were doing something, they right. weren't doing anything. They weren't doing anything. It was like, we're not going to take this seriously. Read it over the summer. Oh, we're going to read their eyes are watching God, but I can't say a damn thing about it. That's right. like insightful. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm that, and it's also making me think of how thankful I am for my mom because I think I was older. I was in high college probably when we did this, but we would always pick usually a biography and read it together. Mm. Sometimes it was fluffy. Like I remember reading Ava Gardner, an Ava Gardner biography with my uh -huh. mom. Yeah. But then we also read Wrapped in Rainbows, which is this beautiful Valerie Boyd biography of um, Zora Neale Hurston. Okay. Gorgeous. And like we read that together and would talk oh. about it. So there are ways in which like she supplemented the huge gaps. Right. In, right. And like literary education. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, uh, school curriculum is tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you reported on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I do want to ask you this. You mentioned a bunch of books on mothering earlier. Do you have any other books about mothering that kind of stick out to you that are some favorites or really worth people's time besides okay. your own? We Live for the We by Danny McLean. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would, so I'll just say again, you know, revolutionary mothering is very important. Um, the writings of Patricia Hill Collins, uh, something like beautiful by Asha Bandale. I really love baby love by Rebecca Walker. Um, she just writes about, I think it's called, I think the subtitle is choosing motherhood after a lifetime of ambivalence or something like that. Mm. It's great. I read that probably I was in my early thirties. Um, and, you know, it's just like this intimate, very personal um, book about her pregnancy and, the, you know, kind of wrestling with her own childhood and relationship with her mother and thinking about what it meant for her to become a mom. 
I read a lot of those books, specifically Asha Bandele, Rebecca Walker, um, the Sheree Moraga that I mentioned. I wanted to read, um, like, I wanted to see how mem- there's a way in which, like, to me, to write about motherhood felt like the province of the mommy blog, right? Mm-hmm. Just like not ser- not taken right. seriously. Right. And so I wanted to see how these writers who I take very seriously approach the topic because I wanted to write a serious book right. about motherhood myself. Um, and so those were, those were a, a couple of books that I, that I leaned on. Okay. So I just, one more question for you, which is if you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? <laughs> I just, so I keep thinking of books and then thinking like, but he wouldn't get that unless he'd already read this. You know what I mean? Well, we'll have to also (laughs) assume that he has reading comprehension and all those things. Like that if he read it, that he would understand it and wouldn't finish it and would pay attention. Right, right. Because otherwise, who knows? I mean, I'm going to just say a writer, a couple of writers who I would like for him to read. Um, Robin Kelly. Okay. Um, He's a historian. Um, <clears throat> who's written a lot about the radical imagination. Mm-hmm. I got turned on to Robin Kelly, Robin D.G. Kelly, when I was in, um, when I was in um, college because I studied African-American history and I was particularly interested in the relationship between the Communist Party and black folks, mm-hmm. um, like in the 30s and 40s. And um, so he wrote a book called Hammer and Ho that was very much, that was, that shaped me. Um, so, so I would suggest that he read some Robin Kelly so that he could, who, Rob, Robin's a historian. So I would want him to get grounded in a history of this country mm-hmm. that I think would challenge a lot of his understandings of what this country is about. That's good. That's a really good answer. <laughs> um, okay. So that's it for us today. Before we move on, just a reminder, Danny's book is We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. It's out in the world. It's been out for a while. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Even if you think I'm not black or I'm not a mother, Mm -hmm. I think that you'll get something out of it. I got a lot out of it. A lot, a lot, a lot. Next week, Danny and I will be back. We're going to be talking about The Light of the World, which is a memoir by Elizabeth Alexander. If you're on the fence about this book, I was on the fence. I wasn't sure. And I freaking loved it. And then I found out that it was Michelle Obama's favorite book of 2015. So you have a cosign from me and Michelle Obama. (laughs) I'm not sure which one's more valuable to you, but you have it from both of us. Um, There will probably be some spoilers, but it's really, there's not really a ton to spoil. The book is about what it's about. And as soon as you open the book, you know what it's about. Um, So that will be next week. Danny, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yay. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. And thank you to Danny McLean for being our guest. I also want to say thank you to Jocelyn Pedro for setting up this interview and getting us a copy of We Live for the We. Don't forget, next week, we're back to discuss The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander. Everything we talked about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. And make sure you link up with The Stacks on social media, at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show and more, go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the fun. If you're looking for a book recommendation, email us at askingthestacks at gmail.com to get your recommendation read on air. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. I will see you in the stacks.